You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been having some interesting conversations with uh, some market urbanists. We have a, a website, a Twitter feed, and a Facebook group. I'm friends with a bunch of them, and we've been having some rather interesting conversations. They nominated, <laughs> maybe for lack of a better term, a guy named Scott Beyer to come on the podcast today and chat with me about some of these things, which I'm very excited about. For the benefit of everybody else out here, you're the owner of the Market Urbanism Report, which is a, a media company uh, that advances the market urbanism ideas. You are a, a journalist currently traveling the country over three-year period of time working for Forbes and Governing and, and Housing.com reporting on housing and market urbanism type of issues. Scott, welcome to the podcast. If I didn't get something right there, let me know. Uh, no, it sounds about right. And thank you for having me on. It's wonderful. Tell me a little bit about being a urban affairs journalist and traveling the country. This sounds kind of fun and exotic. Okay, so I'm currently on a cross-country trip, and I'm about halfway through, where for a three-year period, I'm living in 30 cities in America for roughly a month each to cover urban issues. So this trip started in the fall of 2015, and I drove from my hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia, down to Miami, and Miami was my first stop. And then I'm going clockwise around the country. So I've already been through the South and the Southwest and went up the West Coast. And now I'm on the second leg of my journey and moving back East. So I'm currently in Salt Lake City, uh, Provo to be exact, and I'm moving back east through the Great Plains and the Midwest and the Mid-South. And the final quarter of the trip, I'm going up the East Coast and will end in New York City in the fall of 2018. There are a whole bunch of people listening right now that just changed their entire career objectives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. No kidding. Um, did you come up with this idea and, and pitch it to somebody or did somebody come to you with this? I came up with the idea and pitched it to Forbes and they were, they, they were like, yeah, we'd love to have street level coverage of different cities. Tell me one fascinating thing that you've learned that you didn't know that you had no clue about. I think that one thing would in the big macro level picture of the trip so far would be the vast migration that's going on between from the North part of the country to the Southern part of the country, um, which is backed by the demographic trends of many more millions moving to the southern area of the country, particularly big metros like um, Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, Phoenix, places like that, away from the northern part of the country and the Midwest. It gives you two different images of America. It's like one part of America is kind of declining and struggling to hold on. And then the other part of America is booming and getting mass population flows and so it, it presents a very different uh, image of two different kinds of Americas. A couple of just quick hit questions. 
I know you're only halfway through and you've got a, a lot of America to cover yet, but so far, what has been your favorite city? New York City is always going to be my favorite city. <laughs> you haven't been in New York yet as part of this trip though, right? Well, I've been to all of America's cities. So I spent a lot of my time before this just kind of traveling around. This is the formal and the finalization of the trip. But I've actually been to all these cities. So uh, yeah, I've, I've been to New York and actually lived there for a short period. And I'm a huge urban density fanatic, I guess you could say. I love what New York represents. So it'll always be my favorite American city. One of the reasons that we wanted to do this podcast is because uh, we had some some disagreements. And by we, I don't mean you and me in particular, but me and <laughs> a large group of the market urbanists. You and I had chatted a little bit and thought that it would be a very good way to start this conversation by just talking a little bit about each other. And I, I will gladly start because when I first heard of market urbanism, it was a little bit like hearing about Reese's peanut butter cups. I mean, peanut butter and chocolate are two things that I love. You put them together. That is beautiful. Markets and urbanism are two things that I have a strong passion for. And if there's a group of people out there who are embracing both at the same time, uh, the Venn diagram of that conversation and a conversation that I would like to see having has a huge overlap. I have found over the intervening period of time that I've gotten to know some of you uh, that I really like you guys a lot. I, you know, we've had many uh, market urbanists on our podcast. We've had a number of their work featured on our site. I, I hung out with a bunch of you in, uh, and I'm using you, the collective you, a bunch of people who identified as market urbanists at the FeeCon conference in Atlanta. And, you know, we could hardly like you know, leave the, leave the bar and go back to the hotel room at night because we were all having such a good time conversing. So I feel like our two conversations have a lot of, of overlap. And I think maybe as a starting point, uh, I just like to express a, a level of admiration for the, the work you guys have done. Well, thank you. I'll do the same with strong towns. I mean, I think the, the interesting thing about the strong towns I don't want to call it a blog either. Do you consider yourself like an institute at this point? Uh, we kind of started as a blog and it's really grown into a full media site now. So yeah, we don't, we don't refer to it as a blog anymore either. We would like to become a Forbes governing magazine, housingonline.com. They're online publications. I think that's where we're moving towards, but with a little more advocacy, maybe. And that in itself would probably be the, the top of my praise right there is just the ability to have an idea that began very small and evolve it into something that's more institutional and better known. I mean, I look at you as like a model of what market urbanism should be, you know, of somebody who has grown a concept. And so I think that's really admirable. And also, I mean, I know that this probably got lost in translation during the social media conversations, but I actually do like a lot of Strong Towns' work. I think that you bring really important conversations in, into the issue. And, and the thing that really woke me up when I was first reading Strong Towns is the way to look at streets. You know, I've always been somebody who, as an urbanist, is a complete streets person. But I thought it was really interesting to begin reading Strong Towns and hear directly from a professional engineer, like these problems, the reason our, our roads look the way they do is because of something that's systematic within the engineering profession. 
um, and that there is this groupthink that causes every street in America, as I've seen, to more or less look the same way. And it was really interesting for to have one engineer step outside of the box and say, look, my entire profession is doing this completely wrong, the way we design our streets, the way we embrace infrastructure. Um, so it's been a really interesting perspective to read. Well, I appreciate that. I wanted to start by, and I think this is for us and also for the people who are listening, an understanding of how we are perceiving each other. Because I think sometimes on social media, you, you know, there's a lot of passions and uh, people jump in at certain points. And I know one of the frustrations that I've had is, you know, I'll write 6,000 words on a topic and someone will take one sentence and, and then, you know, he said this. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I said that within the context of all this other stuff. What I wanted to do was have each of us kind of explain our understanding of the other and then give an opportunity for, you know, some discussion on that just to get us on the same page. And I can start with that. When I read market urbanism and when I interact with people on market urbanism, my understanding of the concept is that uh, right now, today, our housing prices, our, our housing market, our urban form does not reflect a true market, a true market prices. We have many, many things that are impacting that. Primarily among them from the, the market urbanist standpoint would be kind of arbitrary government regulations, many instituted because of nimbyism and uh, people not wanting to see growth and development in their places kind of in a reactionary way. And that we could solve many of the problems that we face today, whether it is housing affordability problems or, you know, whether it's government spending problems, you know, parking problems, et cetera, we could solve a lot of these problems if we just allowed market systems to work and uh, allowed market systems to, to run their course. Our resistance of that and our inability to, you know, a allow that market feedback to, to take place uh, has created a lot of distortions that are harming people. And so the, the market urbanism approach is to say, let's remove those barriers Let's allow prices to work. Let's allow things to be built and constructed in response to market demands. And uh, that will solve a lot of these problems. That's my take. Am I missing something? Am I, am I off on that? Am I uh, overlooking an important aspect? I think you've pretty much hit the nail on the head. In the broad sense, yes, market urbanists think that land use should be deregulated and that that would give a more pure look at how our transportation grid would function under an open market. And I think more pertinently, how our housing market would function under an open market. And, um, you know, it would make housing cheaper and more abundant. Where different nuances come about is, are there certain types of regulations that are more important than others when it comes to making housing affordable? And I think there's also an academic question within people who think of themselves as libertarian in cities and, and urbanists is how exactly would cities develop under an open market? Would they become denser? Would they become more sprawling? Uh, would they take on some of the forms that you write about on strong towns where they have a lot of missing middle housing and more um, mid-rise and incremental density? I think those are really fascinating conversations because they try to take a look at what is the consumer demand in America actually and how would cities develop if these regulations were taken away? That's a side conversation 
within the market urbanism movement. But I think the broader macro point is one that you pretty much summarize, which is that, yeah, just get rid of, you know, get rid of these regulations and see what happens in cities. Your turn. I'm going to be as generous as I can. Uh, we have a pretty expansive dialogue going on. So sometimes I have trouble explaining it. But uh, I just, you know, give you an opportunity to talk about your viewpoint of what Strong Towns is. Okay, well, the thing about Strong Towns that appeals to me personally the most is just the idea that cities in America, and particularly the smaller cities that are in less advantageous regions, need to find a way to achieve fiscal solvency. They need to be really wise about their decisions and not just throw away money the way that they have before, often after receiving federal money. And so they need to be more fiscally sound and uh, more wise in the way that they spend on infrastructure and basic public services. Now, the wrinkle within the Strong Town's message that first caused me to want to reach out to you is the idea of incrementalism. I won't try to explain to you what incrementalism is too much because I'm not sure exactly how you've defined it yet. But as I, as I understand from having read your articles about incrementalism, it seems to be that you think that governments themselves, and this is probably the part of it that I would be with you on, but I, you can correct me at any point. You think that Governments themselves should have a more incremental attitude in how they use their money and how they spend on public projects. So rather than making large, dumb plans, they should make small, incremental plans and then test them to see if they actually work. So rather than putting, shoving a major highway, for example, through a city, maybe you do the little things that will improve transportation mobility and see if that works and then expand upon that rather than one big top-down project. Um, am I correct on that? Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Yeah, I think that's certainly part of our conversation. Okay, and then so the, the other angle of incrementalism that I'm not really sure what you think about, and I'll just have you explain, is incrementalism as it, as it pertains to private land use decisions and private development should the use of land by private developers and private citizens be incremental in the sense that zoning is only loosened incrementally and is not responsive to market processes, but has to um, abide by a certain more bottom-up approach to growth? Right. It seems a little bit like the place where we had the most – vigorous conversation is the idea that there should be some constraints on land use for the private sector that I've detailed as, as incremental. What I've suggested is that we should be allowed by right to incrementally build to the next level of intensity everywhere. I think some people have, have stated that would make 99% of America an upzoning, but, and I, I think that this is also true, it would make a certain percentage of America where you do have demand and there's clear evidence of demand, it would artificially constrain what people want to build in those places. Uh, it would be beyond what the next increment would be. That's the thing that's gotten the ire of people over at Market Urban. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah. I mean, well, I think our question would be then, so... I mean, the, the incrementalism regarding the public sector makes perfect sense. 
to me anyway, especially considering the, you know, it's not just highway boondoggles. It's a boondoggle for everything. It's, it's the metro area of Dallas deciding that it wants to build a huge light rail system, even though Dallas isn't really oriented around public transit and light rail. It's like this big top-down mentality that you just got to shove big projects through and throw a lot of money at them just because that's the right way to do it. It feels like a, a giant to me, like lurching from one thing to the next, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the, the public incrementalism idea certainly makes sense and would be a refreshing breath of fresh air from the current status quo. But I don't, I don't see the justification for having incrementalism for seeing what I see as imposing incrementalism on the private development market, because even if it causes up zonings in most of America, I think it would, that would in fact restrict a lot of land in very key areas. And we're already dealing with that problem and it's already creating a housing shortage. So I think that's where me and a lot of the market urbanists, I think we just wanted some clarity. Like, is that what you're advocating for? Yeah, it is. Yes. But I'd, I'd like to have a deeper conversation of it because there's a part of me that feels from the dialogue we've had online that if we had a sort of like the core problem we're trying to solve, it felt to me like the market urbanists are trying to solve a housing affordability problem. What we're trying to solve is essentially the government solvency problem. I think acknowledging that those are two like different and very, um, they're interrelated problems, but they're two very different problems is maybe the place to start to at least understand, you know, the rationale for the other. I don't want to speak for you, but, uh, you know, it seems like the the thing that is driving the conversation there is the housing affordability issue. I would take it a step further than that, actually. I think if you look at the YIMBY movement, they're, they're an example of a group that really is just about the housing affordability problem. They just want more housing. And I'm, fi and I'm fine with that. I mean, I more or less totally agree with the YIMBY movement. I think for market urbanism, there is there are certain goals beyond just adding more housing. We're as interested in the means as much as in the ends, in the sense that we want a market-oriented process to be applied to cities because that reflects the will of the people and of specific individuals. It's like consumer demand is a reflection of what people want in a given area. That's kind of the idea behind market urbanism as much as the actual final goal of having more affordable housing is, are people able to mobilize within a city the way that they want to with the transportation networks that they choose to pay for? And are they able to buy the type of housing in the locations they want and the architectural styles that they want because the market has been liberalized and those housing options have been provided? So it's like, when we hear something like incremental density, we hear something saying this is a this is somebody else's idea of what the correct density is. I mean, there could be a number of problems with it, but I think above all else, if it's limiting certain types of development styles that the, that the private consumer wants, then we look at that as a negative thing. Right. I used to. I don't say this in a in a condescending way at all. I used to completely agree with that. And I, I think if I went back a decade or more, you could have called me a financial libertarian and I would have been in complete agree. Like I, I would not have, have disputed that at all. 
today, I certainly at a macro level, at the, at the nationwide level, embrace economically libertarian ideals. I mean, I, I would love to see the simplest form of government applied and the most liberalized markets on a macro level. When we get to the local level, I struggle. And I struggle, you know, because I have developed right or wrong this understanding of cities and their pending solvency problems and just how that impacts our neighborhoods. I'm not going to associate you with Randall O'Toole, but I, I do want to reflect on a debate that I had with him because it was, it was frustrating to me. It also opened my eyes a little bit to the fact that I look at local government not necessarily state government and federal government. They're often too disconnected from people. But I, I definitely look at local government as being the closest reflection we have to the Massachusetts town hall meeting where people are getting together and shouting at each other and deciding what we're going to do here. Uh, you know, for all its imperfections, I look at local government as like a collection of us. And, you know, a lot of the things that we have decided to do at the local level, we've, in a sense, decided through a process together. When I step back and look at local government today, what I see is a system that has been, in a sense, dominated and in many ways perverted by state and federal policies and state and federal incentives. But I see that going in the other direction now. I mean, I, I see the federal government essentially going broke and walking away from a lot of these things. I see the state governments doing the same things, you know, mandating that cities provide certain services, but not giving them the money to do it, uh, mandating that cities operate in a certain way, but, you know, basically being a against the local interest. And so I become more of a, of a localist, more of the, the idea that, Okay, we've lived in this thing where we've been able to have uh, huge federal government investments. We've been able to have huge transportation projects. We've been able to have the federal government come in and subsidize our housing, uh, subsidize Wall Street so that we can finance certain projects. If that stuff is going away, which it feels like it is, and we're untethered from that, we're on our own, wh where are we? And I, I feel like we are in, I mean, financially, we're in a horrible state. You know, we don't have any money to maintain any of these streets or pipes or sidewalks. We can go to the outliers of San Francisco and New York and I think talk about them separately in that regard. But when we look at our cities, we are essentially in a place that we've, we've never been before. Uh, we've never taken, and you can take the city of Detroit as like the early example of this, taking a city that was very dense, very compact, uh, very mature, and essentially denuded it and spread it out over a, a wide area with all kinds of costs for, you know, the city, the system and all the people within it. We've never been here before. And how do we figure that out? In the early days, I kind of, you know, cause I come from the planning profession and the engineering profession. My early responses were very technical. You know, do we need to look at complete streets? Do we need to think about form-based codes? What can we do from a technical standpoint? And I very quickly got beyond that and said, this is a complex system that we don't really understand. Cities are complex, adaptable places that we don't really get. And the way we go about trying to figure out what to do is by moving incrementally. And so I have kind of become, and I think it's a fair criticism to say, 
you become stuck on this notion of incrementalism and it doesn't always work. I'm sure that that is very true. Um, but I've also come to the conclusion that the downsides of it not working are not going to be that great, but the downsides of us going in the other direction and just keeping lurching back and forth are much, much worse. So that that's maybe a kind of nuanced attempt to explain how I got to this point. And I'd, I'd welcome any critique or, or thought you have in reaction to that. Well, I think it depends on, of course, what cities you're talking about. And I know that you focus more on uh, on smaller towns and mid-sized cities. At least that seems to be the case. And I'm not going to argue with you on those points. I'm not extremely familiar with what's going on in you know small towns in the Midwest. Um, I think the, the reason that people probably wanted me to be on this podcast was to ask you, let's say in the 10 or 15 cities that are really booming in the United States and that have massive demand for living there and that make up a vastly disproportionate share of our GDP and our, inter- and our innovation and our population, how is incrementalism supposed to work in those places? And what, what type of incrementalism specifically that do you want to see? Let's take a case study city like Seattle, which to me strikes me, Seattle strikes me as the ultimate example in the United States of a city that grew around the automobile like many other cities did but is now ready to massively densify and become the next New York or Boston or just a really dense city. What would your incrementalism be for a place like Seattle? Because I think that if you look at the downtown neighborhoods and the neighborhoods around downtown, many of which are zoned for single family, if you let the market work in in those places, you would get 30, 40, 50 story buildings. Now, Admittedly, that's not incrementalism, but what I would want to know is why would incrementalism then be appropriate and what kind, exactly what type of incrementalism would you want to see in a place like Seattle? Right. I think Seattle is a very interesting case because, as you know, you know the further west you go, the more auto-centric the core development pattern is. The solvency issues that I get uptight about – just increase in magnitude many, many fold the further west you go. It's pretty easy to go to Boston, let's say, and look out at the neighborhoods surrounding like the core of Boston and say, okay, you know, if Boston goes completely bankrupt and like this doesn't work, these places are going to be okay. It's, it's gonna, it's gonna work itself out. It's built on a grid. It will over time evolve and change. It's been here a long time. It's going to work. When you go to Seattle and you look at not only the city and the immediately surrounding neighborhoods, but you look at this like vast expanse that is Seattle. And you see the amount of infrastructure in the ground per the amount of tax base. You see the intense amount of effort it takes to keep that all running. It drives me nuts. It, 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 it sets me out like, how does this work? This doesn't work. The only reason it works is because we've done it over this long time horizon. And basically like the, the due date for this bill is coming and Seattle's not ready for that. So when I look at Seattle, it baffles me to no end how you can have all of these single family home neighborhoods within like close in walking distance of high rise towers where clearly like there's, there's demand for this. Yet I look at those single family home neighborhoods and the only thing making them near financially viable 
is that the underlying land is priced so high. The buildings on them are not priced high. The buildings uh, on them are not worth all that much. They're single family homes. They're sure they, they might have, you know, nice appointments on the inside and they, they might have a, a whirlpool tub or a theater or whatever. I don't know what, what, you know, has been done that nice wood floors, but you're not getting, you know, $10 million valuations out of a home because of the house. You're getting it because of the land, the underlying land. And so to me, I look at that and I say, you don't have a problem in this block. You have a problem in like square miles of space. And the, the fundamental problem is that the land is demanding way more intense use. I step back then and I say, well, okay, <laughs> what would happen if we solve this in that way? I would take out of Seattle and go to Austin, where I've spent a, a lot more time kind of looking at this in a detailed way. And you can see over and over and over again where Austin has tried to solve this problem in, in two ways. Way number one is to build lots more out on the edge, which is a huge subsidized Ponzi scheme. It, it is a disaster from the city's budget, but it does build some level of affordable housing, but it's way, way out on the edge. The other way they've tried to deal with it is to allow, through market liberalization, as intense a buildings as you can. And when I look at that, and I talk to the developers there, uh, we always get back to the fact that the land is priced really, really high. The land is like obscenely high. And so they'll say, when I buy this little house and I'm going to build something on here, I have to build 20 stories because that's what the land prices justify. And you get in this, I think, you know, catch 22 kind of cycle where it's like, okay, I have to build this intense because that's what the land is priced at. And then you go and look at the land being priced that high because that's what people can do with it. And I just sat down and ran the numbers. I said, okay, if we took every piece of land that is priced this high and we actually ran that out and said, we're going to build at the intensity that would be demanded by that price. In other words, let's assume the market is accurate. It is accurately reflecting prices. Let's go out and let's build intensely at that price. What you would find is that a city like Austin would need like 20 million people. It would be so intense, a number that will never, ever happen in Austin. And so I step back and I say, well, the, the land is mispriced. There's something stuck in this market. There's something that's not working here in the underlying land values. If it's actually has this huge supply in relationship to what the potential demand could be. There's something stuck and broken. I can't tell you what it is. I can't figure it out. I, I've kind of, you know, theoretically gone through and said, I don't think it's solely this. I don't think it's solely that. I, I find this uh, aspect that people throw out as being the answer to be lacking and, and not a complete explanation. I don't know what it is. The group that got so upset with me on the market urbanism say, will say, well, Chuck, it doesn't matter. It's just demand. And, you know, at the end of the day, for me, it does matter because as the city, if you're sitting here facing literally in Seattle, square miles of land that's financially not viable, and that's like an overhang that you have to deal with someday, to me, what needs to happen in all those neighborhoods is that they need to become more intense. They need to actually grow and see investment and become more viable. And that can't happen when the land prices are stuck and distorted. And it can't happen when the regulations make it stuck and distorted. So my solution has been, or my approach has been, let's try to figure this out by 
clearing away those regulations, allowing people to build by right to the next increment. Let's get that going. And my sense is that what that would do is it would have a little bit of development everywhere and drop the underlying land values down significantly. That in essence is, you know, the way I would deal with Seattle. My response to that will be broken up into different things. So I don't necessarily agree that the land values in hot places like Seattle and Austin are inflated in any way or are somehow unsustainable based on what the population growth will be. I think that the population growth in a place like Austin, especially one of the fastest growing uh, metro areas by population in the United States, I think that the land values are a reflection of that. I don't think they're a distortion. I don't think it's inflation. I think it is, this is a city that is ready to grow up and grow vertically and become the next New York or LA. To me, when I think of a supply demand curve and I look at like the supply of, of land in the core of Austin or in the core of, uh, of Seattle and I look at the, the demand for building, even if you poured it on, could not possibly, if you were building towers, suck up all that demand. Am I off on that? I think a, a nuanced look that a market urbanist would take to a situation like this is, no, I mean, you won't, you won't address all the demand just by building up. You probably will need some missing middle. You might even need some sprawl. And those land plots specifically that you're talking about, like let's talk about the land around University of Texas. There's a huge – I mean, University of Texas is a huge school. It employs a lot of people. It has – I think it's one of the biggest public – is it not one of the biggest public universities in the country? So it has, there is a lot of demand for living around the UT campus in Austin. And so for those land plots specifically, it's, it's really not hard to see why the land would be so valuable and why development would be so vertical if it were allowed to actually grow. That doesn't mean it's going gonna, it's gonna to deal with all of Austin's demand issues. I mean, there's probably some demand for living on the north side. There's probably some demand for living in different areas of the metro area. And not all the development would be high rise. I'm not saying that. If you look at UT, I think that's a really good example. And I'm agreeing with the market urbanism that we could drive down prices by building more. If we provide more supply to meet the demand, prices will go down. That's like a fundamental tenet of of economics, I think that we agree on. I think if you take that though, and you look at the land values, the, the thing that is actually driving, when you talk to developers, they'll say, I have to build at this level of intensity because that's what the land values demand. If I'm going to pay this much for this land, here's what I got to do. If you do that just around UT and say, uh, you know, here's how many new units we need every year. Let's build double that. At some point you will reach a saturation point. And then what is the land worth? Well, the land is probably worth more. Like right now, the, the land values around the central Austin area are probably being constrained because the zoning doesn't allow a lot of uh, development on them. So I'm in agreement with you that if you, if you deregulate those areas, the land values will go up. I actually am saying the opposite, though. Not completely the opposite, but I, I'm saying that Right now, you look at Austin and the land values are really, really high. They're really high. The buildings on them are not worth all that much in comparison. I mean, the value is in the land. 
they're pretty deregulated now. I mean, in a lot of places, you can build a lot of intensity. It's a long, drawn-out process. And you've got to have Wall Street backing and you've got to have a lot of money and you got to hire a team of people to get you through the bureaucracy. But you can get stuff built there, right? It, well, it depends on what parts of Austin. I mean, there are literally parts of Austin right around the UT campus that are zoned for single family residential. That's true. Yeah, you, you're true. Yeah. So, yeah, I think those land values are certainly being constrained. But I, I guess I don't really see the the point in obsessing over land values um, or I don't really see why it's what larger point about development you're trying to make. To me, the land values, they signal to me that there is something beyond supply and demand that is distorting this. There's something beyond like simple supply and demand because the, the underlying relationship between the land and what's built on it is way out of whack. What I am, I think, at the end of the day, most concerned with is less the affordability issue and more the, the government solvency issue. Because right now, if you're a local government, uh, you benefit from this distortion. You benefit from having the land prices artificially high because that's your tax base. You're getting money from that. But you're also going to get creamed when the opposite happens, when we reach that saturation point and the land values drop. That's the antithesis. That is going to destroy your tax base and the wealth on which you're drawing from to actually make good on all those promises you've made, to, to fix all those roads and sidewalks, maintain all that pipe. All, all that comes from the wealth that's generated there. If that wealth isn't real, if it's a, if it's a distortion, you're going to make really bad decisions in the interim and everybody's going to suffer at the end of the day. And so my obsession on the land values is because I, I feel like the land value, if you went to Austin – and the land values were a tenth of what they were. And the market was more liberalized in terms of what you could build. I think you would see a lot of people going in and converting single family homes to duplexes and building smaller apartments and, 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 you know, you know, four units and six units and eight units. I think what you have is you have this huge upward distortion in land values. And so what you see is you see people in a sense building the only thing they can justify with those land values. And then turning around and saying, you know, I have to do it because of this. And here, look at the demand. It's, it's, it's this reinforcing mental echo chamber in my mind. I think a lot of where uh, we are not seeing eye to eye, and it's, it, it's not necessarily that I'm looking at all this through the prism of land values, but I'm looking at, at it. I am looking at it through the prism of fiscal solvency in cities, though. So if, if you were to deregulate a place like Austin and to have – rapid high-rise development around the Austin campus and around the downtown area, it sounds like you are saying that ultimately that's going to be fiscally uns unsustainable because eventually the land values will drop. Yeah. But I don't understand how would, how would allowing high-rise development in an area and, and allowing a massive agglomeration economy in a place like central Austin, why would land values and why would economic productivity drop? I usually – associate it quite the opposite. It's like the second that you allow a lot of people and a lot of development to go into a set area, that's when, that's when wages go up. That's when land values go up. That's when tax revenue goes up. That's when job growth goes up. That's when income goes up. Innovation. It's like that is the recipe allowing all that density in an area is precisely the recipe that enables governments to grow totally flush and enables economic prosperity. Right. I agree with you. 
But when we look at Austin or we look at Seattle, which I think are, are two prime examples of this, I think that that is true in a relatively small area. And when you look at Austin, the overhang of Austin right now, the, the like death nil fatal problem that they have is that they have a small, you know, measured in square blocks area that is really financially productive and successful. And then there it is surrounded by this massive, massive dead weight of land that is essentially being propped up and subsidized in the short term and is going to sink the whole ship in the long term. So the challenge that Austin has is not to let's, you know, take the fire that is burning and, you know, pour a bunch of gasoline on that and make that into an inferno right here. The challenge that a city like Austin has is to say, how do we get that out into these other places that are ultimately going to be the drag on what is working? I think what we agree on is that a downtown area, quote unquote, that's vertical is massively economically productive. And actually, you showed this in Lafayette, so it, it does apply to to small cities as well, but it really applies to big cities, which is the downtown area is massively economically productive, and it subsidizes basically the rest of the region. That is an absolute fact of American development patterns that we have recognized every single place we put numbers down. I mean, we can prove that mathematically, yes. Okay, but so what, so what you're saying is that if you allow incremental density in the areas around that, the wealth that is produced by density will spread more to the less productive areas because it's not all being concentrated in one place. Is that what you're saying? In a way, yes. I think there's a double side of it. I think one, you're, in a sense, you're flaming out the one while ignoring and allowing the other to kind of decompose. And I, I think that from a city strategy and, and a city being a collection of us that live in a place, a better strategy to try to, you know, not have a huge distortion in one and not have the other one go dark is to actually build incrementally in a way that would thicken up that rug is the way that I've kind of put it. Let me present another case study for you because I actually, I actually uh, published an article on the market urbanism report today about it. And that is, I mean, this is the ultimate market urbanist case study, in my opinion, in, in the United States, at least, which is the Miami neighborhood of Brickell. That is an overnight skyscraper neighborhood that was essentially some combination of a low-rise business district and single-family residential neighborhood as recently as the mid-90s. Within like a 20-year period, it became a mini Manhattan because there was a lot of uh, – there was a lot of immigration coming into Miami. Uh, there's a lot of very wealthy immigrants who are escaping various countries in Latin America, and they embrace urban living, and they moved into Miami. And Miami allowed at least one place where they were going to allow all these new these newfound immigrants to go, and it was called Brickell. So they, they took away the parking regulations. Uh, they, they deregulated parking. They deregulated building heights and basically just let, just let developers build to the sky. The analysis that I provide in the article is that Brickell is overwhelmingly subsidizing the greater part of Miami. When you look at uh, overall tax revenue, when you look at job growth, the types of jobs that are being created, you know, Brickell has become 
basically like a Latin American banking capital. I would begin by saying this is a, this is not only a good thing, this is an extremely good thing for Miami, and it demonstrates why other cities that have pent up demand should be building neighborhoods like Brickell. Do you think there's anything wrong with this neighborhood model? The way you describe it, no. No, not at all. I've not been there, so I can't, you know, speak firsthand. But I think it's important to point out that an incremental development pattern would not preclude towers and big buildings. And there's large parts of of Austin and Miami and, and Seattle uh, that should have towers and should have huge buildings. That is a natural outcome, and it is a natural kind of ending point uh, for, you know, urban development. Um, okay, then, then can I can yeah. I ask you a follow up? Yeah, go for it. I don't think you've made yourself clear on that. Like, I, I think that's the question that I wanted to ask you all along was I've read your articles about incrementalism and I saw you and not, not to take one line out of the article, but I did see one line about you thinking that um, times 1.5 density is the appropriate metric in many places. But I mean, I think overall, when I'm reading your articles about incrementalism, I'm not getting a clear message from you about what you think of these major cities, like how you think incrementalism should work in these major cities. And I think that's where a lot of the the um, uncertainty and unclarity between you and the market urbanists are taking place. Because if you do have a place like Miami – that basically became high rise overnight in this one neighborhood. And if you do have places like downtown Seattle that could do the exact same thing if they were allowed to be deregulated, I don't see what the point of increment of incrementalism would be in those contexts. Like I would be just tempted to say, well, build to the sky. What exactly is going to be bad about it? Because that high rise build to the sky mentality has shown to be, has, has proven to be a very economically productive way to build a city. So is your definition of incrementalism that that should be allowed to happen in major cities or that it should not? I will say, I don't know. I don't know. I know that that's frustrating. Sometimes we, people get frustrated with me because I, I will say often that I, I don't know. Part of my embrace of the incremental concept is that I, I don't know. I, I really don't. And I think the, you know, the case study that you're pointing out is great. You've also said it's 20 years old. I, I think the, uh, you know, the measure of a city is certainly not the first generation. It's always the, the second, third, fourth generation. How, how do these places renew themselves? How do they continue on over time? How do they hold their productivity and become better places? I was last week spent the whole week in Washington, DC, um, which is a place where, where there's huge artificial constraints on, on height limits. And I, I get that, but I also find it to be in many times very confusing. I find a lot of our major cities this way very confusing as well because I will get to a place and there were a couple of times when I got off the metro in Washington DC and I'm surrounded by parking lots or you know like single one one and two story buildings and I'm looking at this going this is a city where you know people are telling me $5,000 $6,000 a month for an apartment yet I'm sitting here looking at a parking lot how can this possibly be and I would then take it to the next step and say, so you're telling me that the solution to this problem is to go way over there and build a tower? That seems to me like, to use the old adage, you know, putting all your eggs in one basket. I'm reflexively reluctant to go for simple solutions like that. And I see places like, like Austin is a, is a very good example of where 
they've tried to beat their affordability problem down by just, you know, building tall. I think that that has taken, in a sense, the entire rest of the community off the hook in dealing with this problem. I think it's going to have long range implications that we really don't understand today. Okay, well, let's talk about Washington, D.C., because that would be another example. So if Washington, D.C. went Miami on itself, I think would have the exact same thing would happen. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, wipe out the historic neighborhoods. I'm not saying that. But there are parts of the city where it would be totally appropriate to have high rise development. And it would start to it would start to resemble the type of high rise growth that you're seeing in Miami. And so are so you're defining that as putting all your eggs in one basket because it means that most of the financial wealth is going into one spot. I'm less concerned about that than I am about the long-term viability of those buildings. I've heard once, and I thought this was very compelling, and I've certainly experienced this in older high-rise buildings that I've been in. Some are built magnificently, and you can be in them 60 years later, and you're just, you know, in, in awe, like this is incredible. Some, you know, neighborhoods of sprawl, if we want to use that term, uh, you can go in when they're 60 years old and they look great. But th the predominant way that things develop is that they have a certain, you know, they're built, they have a certain period of time where they're new and shiny, and then they start to show their age. If it's in a horizontal subdivision, you know, where you've got the garages and attached to the houses and stuff, what you can see is you can see a very clear life cycle where things look shiny and new and then they start to go bad. And then, you know, people start to move out to the next shiny and new place. And over time, there's a, there's a downward trend in the quality of the building and the quality of the neighborhood and really in the productivity of the place. Without a way to renew that, in a sense, without a mechanism to go in and, and buy those and, and make them something new, they just stagnate. When you build a tower, especially if it's in isolation, like not in a, like in a Manhattan where you're like literally surrounded by them and Manhattan, the towers were built in many ways. They were the next logical increment for what was around it. If you go to a place like Austin or Seattle and put a tower in next to a residential neighborhood, to me, you've just built the same thing that people are building horizontally. You built it vertically. You built a one life cycle thing. And the question I have is, how does that thing renew itself? What happens when it starts to show its wear 30 years from now? And there isn't like a next increment of intensity that makes any sense. I was getting the sense that that was your criticism of high-rise neighborhoods when I was reading your articles. I was getting the sense that you were saying, are they sustainable? Is it not just all a bubble, you know, that is eventually going to implode on itself? It feels very much like, like that to me, yes. And this relates to that land value thing. I, I feel like we are, we are responding to a false signal by hyper-aggressively building something that is even distorting things more. Well, here would be my response to that, because that's what I, I was getting the sense that that was your position. And my response to that would be, it probably is the case. Well, I know it's the, it is the case in various foreign areas, but I have not found a high rise neighborhood to be a bubble in any part of America. And Miami, again, will be the big test because it it grew relatively overnight and it, it is the newer version of this type of model. But if you look at the old models of high-rise neighborhoods, I don't know any of them that have really seen decline. I don't know any that have become a bubble. 
they seem to only become more and more financially productive with time. I think that the only example of a city that has a really high that has really high rise density that is still struggling and declining might be a place like Chicago. But I would argue that Chicago, the fact that it allowed that it had this mentality of allowing so much high rise development has given it an an economic advantage over other cities in that region. But overall, I mean, if you look at the areas of extremely high density in the United States, I don't know any of them that have become a bubble. You, You can't say that about New York. You can't say that about Boston. You can't say it about San Francisco or L.A., their economic productivity, which was first created in the first place because they densified, is only feeding and perpetuating upon itself. I think from a historical standpoint, here's where I, I kind of struggle. Because I'm, I'm not a very old guy. I'm also realizing that I'm not that young anymore either. I'm in my mid-40s. I remember when there were large parts of our major cities that, that were in decline. I love Buffalo. I've spent a lot of time in Buffalo and I've been in some of the old buildings in Buffalo that were, uh, in a sense, the apex of their development pattern back, you know, a hundred years ago. And you go in there and they're, they're gorgeous. I mean, even though they're in decline and even though they've been neglected and even though a lot of them have walked away from, you know, they made sense at the time they were built and they still kind of retain their value in a way. And I, my hope would be that over time, uh, Buffalo would grow up around it and those buildings would become viable again. I've gotten to see some of these in Dallas more than any other city. When I go in some of the new high-rise buildings that are built in Dallas, they look really nice, right? They're brand new. They, they look great. Um, they've got nice, like, laminate hardwood floor and uh, laminate, you know, elevators. And uh, you go to, like, the common rooms and there's a swimming pool and all this. I know what that stuff takes to maintain, I know what 20 years from now it's going to look like. It's going to need a lot of work. These places have really high burn rates, much in the same way that if you buy a house built in 1910, it's, it's a more resilient kind of building than a single family home built in 2015. They're, they're just, they're, they're different and they wear differently and they have you know, different long-term maintenance needs. My concern about the just, I was just going to use the word mindless. It's not mindless, but just the, the kind of, um, you know, rush to embrace, let's build a bunch of towers, is that we're going down a course that it has a binary outcome. It either works perfectly, it works really well, or it's like a it's a catastrophe at some point in the future. I reflexively like recoil from that type of an approach. I, I, I reflexively say, as a city, as a collection of us working in a place, I am more inclined to want to hedge my bets in as many ways possible than I am to want to embrace, you know, that. Now, take me to Manhattan. You're not going to find me arguing that we shouldn't be building 20 stories, right? Take me to the core of Seattle, and I'm not going to argue with you. But let's go four blocks out of the core to all these single-family home neighborhoods. Those places need to grow. They need to change, and they need to evolve I just wouldn't do it with towers. I, I think you've got to do it in a in an incremental, a more incremental way. I would look at the act of building vertically as you know. You talk about this binary outcome of cities are either gonna they're they're either gonna do really well or they're de- or they're gonna decline. I agree, but I mean, mm-hmm. to me, the way to be on the right side of that binary outcome is to build vertically because. Building vertically has been shown to be an extremely efficient use of land patterns 
it's the type of thing that attracts people to a city and that makes and that I mean, it has all kinds of economic benefits as far as being able to attract certain companies, being being able to attract certain people. So it's like to me, allowing the market to, to allow vertical construction is precisely the way that a city is going to be is going to be able to maintain its economy and get good use out of its land and have high tax revenues as opposed to the sprawling light density cities that are really going to struggle in the future because they're not building places that people want to be at. And they're not building, you know, they're not building a long-term vision. You know, by the way, I agree with everything you just said. I just don't think there's a shortcut to doing it. (laughs) You know, I think that, um, by having the, the very light constraint, and I, I know you, you don't think it's a light constraint, but the very light constraint of saying, and, and just so you know, I'm not enamored with 1.5. I mean, I, I threw that out as like a way to think about it. I think that that is something that would need to be, uh, tried in different places and tweaked and, and worked with. But the idea is that you take what's there and you uh, renew it to the next level of intensity. It's everything that you said, you know, cities that grow dense should be, are more vibrant. They're more successful. Yes, yes, yes. I agree with you. I just think that doesn't mean like density is the answer. Just do it at scale. I think there's more nuance to it than that. I think there's more to the graph than just two axes. Okay. Well, I mean, this is the, this is the final point I'll make, I guess, about this is that I, I don't look at incremental I don't look at the height limits and the impositions of incremental density that are already going on in cities. I don't view that as a light constraint. Like with a lot of the social media infighting that was going on leading up to this, people were like, oh, well, Scott is out looking for a fight and he's he's arguing with somebody who he fundamentally agrees with on everything else. But he's just finding one reason to disagree with him over the height limit thing. But I mean, I think the reason the perspective that I'm coming from is that height limits are not a light constraint. Like to me, height limits are the worst type of regulation. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I respect that. Yeah. So A, there's there's two different types of cities. There are already dense cities like New York and San Francisco that could become a lot denser and height limits are the things that are stopping them from doing that. And then there are another, there are a second tier of cities that grew around the automobile and grew around sprawl. And I'm talking about places like uh, San Diego and Seattle and Miami and Denver and places like that. And height limits are stopping them too. So we have, we have literally 10 or 15 cities that beca- that could, if regulations allowed it, they could emerge into these great metropolises that are extremely economically productive, far more productive than what they are now. And I look at height limits as like the uniform regulation that is stopping all of it. Hey, everybody. (laughs) At the very end there, my computer crashed. Curse the Windows gods. They've been bugging me for like a couple of weeks to update my computer with quote unquote critical updates. And I'm always like, screw it. I have my computer open because I'm working and I don't have my computer open when I don't need it. I'm not doing no stupid update. So apparently it decided like now was the time to do that. And booted everybody out, and now my computer's locked up. So Scott did not get to finish his point. I'm going to ask him uh, if he would like to come back and do that or if he'd like to submit something written. I really just am very grateful and thankful 
uh, social media sometimes can get a little contentious and a little mean. And uh, I know that that was never uh, Scott's intent, certainly wasn't mine. And I hope um, hope you've all benefited from the conversation. I'll say, uh, just in closing, I, Scott might be right. I'm I'm certainly not uh, pretending that he's not and doesn't have a lot of really smart things to say about this. And uh, I am thankful for him taking the time and, and being generous with his thoughts and, and certainly generous with allowing me to uh, express mine. So check out Market Urbanism Report. Uh, we'll post uh, all the links on the site for that. Check out and follow Scott as he travels around the country on what is one of the most exciting projects that I've I've ever heard of. It's like Travels with Charlie in Reverse. I love it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.